0: All right, so yesterday I had this really uh, fun conversation during the men's breakfast with Nathan Polk, And Nathan is running our sound right now, so we should say thank you to him. Good guy. Nathan is, uh, he's one of my favorite people uh, to spend time talking with. And I always tell him, don't talk to me anymore. And he's like, I know you love it. And I'm like, it's actually true. But he, he's a smart, we, we talk a lot about theology, the Bible, people, politics, politics. Uh, just a lot of cool things. And yesterday at our men's breakfast, that we were having this conversation, and I was talking to Nathan a little bit about my my child uh, or my my college years. I was like, "Oh, this is kind of how my college life went." And I was telling him how I don't know how this happened, but I managed to graduate with uh, my undergrad degree, uh, a master's degree, and a second master's degree, and I never ever took a science class at all. And I was like, I don't know how, like I must have just scraped through or something, you know, because I was a theology major and they must have just given up hope on philosophy and theology people. But I was like, yeah, I don't know how it happened. And he made this assertion, he said that he thinks that all my degrees are shams. He's like, he's like I don't even know if you, you actually have uh, those. And I was like, I started really thinking about it. I was like, maybe that's true. But here are other reasons why I think it's possible that my degrees are shams. Um, I had to take an art appreciation class. Anybody in the room take an art appreciation class? I was so pumped because uh, I was like, this is gonna be so easy. I heard through the grapevine that all they did was finger painting, and I was like, I'm in, I can do that. So I went to this class, and I was attending uh, Art Appreciation, and Dawn was actually taking that class as well. She was in the class, I think it was either before me or after me, and I just basically used all of her work. Uh, <laughs> I was like, hey, did you check notes? But here, after a couple weeks, I, I just was like, this class is so boring. Because we weren't learning any of the things that I was hoping we learned, like about art history. And uh, so, what I discovered, um, I came up with this master plan. Uh, During Halloween, some friends and I went out, and I was a hockey player, so I dressed up as a hockey player, and we went door to door, and I went to this neighborhood that was like the rich neighborhood, and I filled up a pillowcase with like full candy bars. Do any of you do full candy bars for Halloween, just out of curiosity? Anybody? Okay, I'm going to your house. I need your address after this. Yours as well, Judy. But I was like filling it up with all this candy. And I got done, and I went to class the next day. And I was sitting there, and the class was so boring. I was like, oh, my gosh. So I raised my hand, and I was like, hey, professor, yesterday I got a whole bunch of candy, and I forgot to bring it to class, and I was going to give it away to everybody. And everybody's all excited. And before she could say no, I got up, and I left. And I went, you know, wandered around, wasted about 15 minutes, got my candy brought back. We had about 30 minutes of class. And then I individually walked around the class and handed one piece of candy to every person, thus killing the entire class. And everybody was like, they all loved me. My professor, however, absolutely hated me. And I was able to basically stretch that out. I would go get candy all the time, just wasting that class, okay? So yeah, my degrees are a sham. Number two class, I had this creative writing class And it was in the same building as my dorm. And so uh, I just, this class was so boring, I couldn't understand a professor uh, at all. And so I figured out about three weeks into it that since I was on the same, I was in the same building as my dorm, I could raise my hand and tell her I forgot my laundry and I would go to the laundry room, get my laundry, bring it back, and fold it during the class. Uh, and and uh, all the girls thought I was amazing, too, because I could fold my laundry, and it was amazing. I wasted all this time. My point being is that my college career had some highlights, and it's an amazing thing that I, I graduated. But here's even more important for us, is that there's some teachers in this room who absolutely want to murder me right now. And the, the hope and the good news is that even the class clown... <laughs> can discover Jesus and can, can find hope in that, right? Um, so teachers don't give up on those people uh, because things have a way of, of working out. But I guess my college experience was typical um, in that the first few years, you're taking all these classes that you don't really care about, I guess, right? You're taking these classes in your general education that are just like, oh man, I don't know why I'm gonna, I don't know why I need this class. And, and I was struggling through a lot of those classes and But there was one class, one class my freshman year that changed my life. And it was a class that, that I, I was forced to take at this university that was I was studying the Bible and theology. Um, and I had to take this class that made a, it made a huge difference in my life. And it was, this, it was this class called Life of Prayer. And the professor was Dr. Brenneman. And I, I went into this class uh, with all these assumptions about prayer. Like I had grown up in the church. I had been in church my whole entire life. I had even grown up in the Vineyard Movement. I had been around um, people who believed in prayer. And yet, even though I went to to church my whole life, I had all these different common misunderstandings of prayer. And it was in that class that I discovered some things that I want to talk about this morning. But before we do that, I'd love to pray. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence here. We thank you for being with us. I thank you that you are able to get through class clowns. You can get through those who we think are hopeless. We can get through those who are hardened. You heal, you heal us from, from every, everything that we need to be healed from. And God, I pray that your spirit would speak to us today as we read scripture and as we think about how it applies into our lives. And Lord, I also want to pray for the teachers in this room. Um, Lord, they put up with some crazy shenanigans. <laughs> And we're so grateful for them. And so Lord, would you bless everybody in here who works in education, everybody who teaches, anybody who, who works with students, would you bless them? And in, in all of God's people who agree with this said, amen. Amen. So I'm taking this, this class and, and as I'm taking it, I'm realizing over the course of this class, Life of Prayer, um, that I just had all these things that I believed about prayer that were like not true at all. Um, And and so a couple of the common misunderstandings about prayer that I think I had, uh, the first one was this, I had to have my life perfect in order to talk to God. Like I just had this assumption that if I am not being like, I had, I was like, I have to be really good for one week before I can pray because he is holy and I am not holy. And if I come to him and I haven't been good for a while, then he is going to throw thunderbolts of lightning to me, and that was this working assumption that God was this cosmic killjoy. God was this angry, uh, angry father who was just waiting for me to approach him so that he could he could dole out those judgments. And that had shaped my whole entire prayer life up until when I was about eighteen or nineteen years old. And and, and so another common misunderstanding that I had is that when I was talking to God, I needed to sound super religious and spiritual. Like, I'm talking King James English. You know, you ever been around people that pray that way? You know, and it's like, oh, thou cometh lordeth from the heavenlies and blesseth us with your present this. And I'm like, present this, what is that? But I had that idea that it was like, I had to have some really, really theologically astute, philosophically wise, religious sounding words when I prayed. And so I generally didn't spend time praying because I felt like my prayers were so basic. Hey, God, playing hockey today, don't let me fall. You know, and like God was like, i mm, sorry, that's not quite spiritual enough for me. Right? So that was a common misunderstanding. It still, it really captivated my understanding of prayer. And, and then finally, I really believed that prayer was mostly about telling God what I needed. And my whole entire prayer life, all through high school, was like when I went into crisis, I would be like, "Lord, I need your help now." Because like I really struggle with math. Like to this, that's why the idea of me teaching my kids about any stewardship with finances is like amazing. Because my ten percent is actually twenty percent, or my twenty percent is three percent, and I struggled, and I would I would actually have anxiety. I would have panic attacks when I had a math test, and I would get sick, I would manifest sickness. Like, mom, I got COVID. She's like, it's 1996. There's no COVID. I know, but it's coming, you know, and, uh, and I would just get sick to my stomach, and it would be like, oh, I can't go to school, and that happened all the time, and, and so I, I really struggled, and so that's when I'd pray, like, Lord, if you help me If you help me know the answer to these questions that I didn't study for at all, I will totally follow you, all right? Or in the midst of sporting events, you know, when we were playing our rivals, it's like, God, I need you to be present with me because I know you love my team better than the other team, so can you please bless me? Or or the crises, relationships, when things started to go sour with somebody, it was like, oh God, will you please help us and and fix that person so they can be perfect for me, right? Right? That was my whole understanding of prayer, though. That was pretty much it. I I encapsulated everything I thought about prayer. But in Dr. Bruneman's class, I learned that prayer was much, much more than than that. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that. And looking at some scripture. And, and we started this new series uh, last week called Anchor to Sail. And some of you were like, oh man, I had no idea where you're going with that. And then after we talked about it, you're like, okay, that makes sense. But we started with this whole idea of, of this premise that basically is this, is that followers of Jesus need to be anchored in order to sail. We have to be anchored in order to sail. And what I mean by this is that we need to have beliefs. We need to have theology. We need to have understandings about scripture that anchor our souls in the truth and reality of Jesus and the kingdom of God in order for us to be able to join God's mission of sailing to share those truths with the world around us. And so we spent some time uh, kind of fleshing that out. And We looked at Acts chapter two and we saw that in the early church, the early church was committed to certain practices, certain habits, certain rhythms, and they, they were committed to them. They were devoted. The language of Acts two is that they were devoted to the teachings of scripture. They were devoted to, to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayers. They were committed to those things. They were like these are the priorities and values for us as a community. Now, if we're going to talk about the anchor of prayer, though, and that's what I want to talk about this morning, I think that one of the best places to begin is, is in what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up in a mainline denomination or a Catholic or Lutheran or or Orthodox, you remember standing up at certain parts of the service and praying the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, you know, like you could just rattle it off and then. Maybe you never spent time thinking about what actually is found and contained in those words. But one of the things I want to clarify before we read this passage is that we call this the Lord's Prayer, right? How many of you ever heard that prayer called the Lord's Prayer? Right? We, we do it all the time. We're like, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer today. But in reality, I think the best name or title for this passage of Scripture, this prayer, is actually we call it the Disciples' Prayer because when Jesus was teaching it he was teaching it to his disciples and he was saying when you pray pray like this pray like this and and so let's read Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 through 13 and listen to to Jesus teaching on prayer this is what we we find in Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 when you pray don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Pray like this, our father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield the temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. So before uh, we really flesh this out, I I want us to see why I think that this is properly referred to as the disciples' prayer. Does that make sense? It's it's like the Lord's Prayer, probably, if we're going to call anything the Lord's Prayer, would be John 17 the high priestly prayer of Jesus before he is crucified, where he, he, it's, it's John recording the prayer that Jesus is going through, praying for his disciples, praying for us even in that passage, praying that God would sustain him through the midst of the crucifixion. This prayer right here is the disciples prayer because what Jesus is doing is he's trying to teach us how to pray, right? And there's nothing more practical than how to pray in my opinion. And so before we talk about what prayer is and should be, let's consider what Jesus says prayer shouldn't be. So what's the first thing that prayer shouldn't be? Prayer shouldn't be about showing off. It shouldn't be about showing off. Now, this is not, a lot of people have used this passage of Scripture to say, hey, you should never pray publicly. You should only pray privately in your house or in your closet. But that's actually not True, because Jesus prays all over the place publicly. Okay, And we also have other passages of Scripture that demonstrate that prayer was done publicly. The church has always believed in praying publicly. This is the, the point that Jesus is trying to make. He's trying to say, as one's motivation is the primary concern. Are you praying in order to be seen? Are you praying in order to be seen? Are you praying publicly to be Seen as being super spiritual, super wise, super, super connected. I mean, you know, really it kind of looks like this is that there are people throughout the church. And we see this all the time when we, when we discover these moral failures by pastors who stand on, on stages and talk so much about, about prayer. And they pray, but then they're, they're, they're living a secret life. Or people who will come into the church on Sunday morning will raise their hands and be super spiritual but are but are abusing their children or who are abusing their spouses. And, and that's really what Jesus is getting here. Is he's saying you shouldn't pray in order to be viewed more spiritual or to show off. That's not the way that we should be praying. He also says that prayer shouldn't be full of empty repetitions. What Jesus is addressing here in this passage, by the way, actually was something that was uh, connected to the cultural context of that day. The pagans or the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people would, would build into their spiritual religious fabrics this idea that if you said the certain words a certain amount of times, you would then move the emotions of the gods and then they would do something like give you rain. Okay, And he's saying, don't do that. You don't need to repeat yourself over and over and over and over again until you hit the quota. By the way, what is the quota? We don't know. Just keep on praying, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's just saying you, you don't need to do that. And, and, and it's interesting because there was, a, there was this faulty assumption amongst that world. It was bad theology because they assumed that in order to get God to do something or the gods to do something, we had to convince him. We had to say the prayers enough to be able to move his emotions. And so bad theology leads to bad practices. And I've thought a lot about this because I feel like we unwittingly like land kind of in this prayer realm. And here's what I mean. By the way that we do just prayers, do you guys know what just prayers are? Have you ever found yourself praying where you're like, Father, would you just show up, Lord? And just... Uh, meet my needs, and just uh, make my coffee warm right now. It's getting cold and just, you know, we say these words and I don't know, sometimes I feel like that's accurate. We're not thinking about the words that we're actually saying. I find myself doing this. I get into repetitive prayers because I pray the same thing sometimes and I have to stop and ask myself, am I praying those things because I'm wanting to connect with God and hear from God and talk to God? Or am I doing it because I'm going through the motions of I have to pray every day for a certain amount of time to check the box. Do you know what I'm talking about? And there's a difference between those two types of of lives of prayer. And so Jesus is challenging that. So so the question I think that we need to ask is, what should prayer be? What should prayer be? What is the point of Jesus' teaching in what we refer to here as the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer? First of all, I think this example of prayer is meant to teach us not necessarily the exact words to pray, but the priorities to pray. That's what Jesus is trying to help us determine. He's not so much wanting us to know the pattern um, with the words. He's trying to teach us the pattern of the priorities. What are the things that, that should be important when we pray? And what you'll notice is that this prayer includes in a beginning invocation, our Father who art in heaven, It starts with this invocation, our Father who art in heaven, and then it's followed by six petitions that give proper priorities. And first three priorities are interesting because they focus on the preeminence of God, the first place of God. Hallowed be your name. Set apart be your name. May you be seen as being holy and altogether different than anything else in creation. There's, there's, There's three petitions right there that that are focused on the preeminence of God. And then the final three focus on personal needs, but their personal needs within the context of community. It's really interesting. There's a lot of language there. Um, their pronouns are we and our. Give us our daily bread. And so when we think about these, these themes and priorities, I think there's a couple things that we can kind of discover here, learning from Jesus. And the first one is this, that God is both relational and sovereign. Our father introduces us to this level of intimacy that God is wanting us to actually know about him. And I remember when I was like, when I was a teenager, probably 18, 19, I started hearing a lot about in our churches, the idea of intimacy with God. And I'll be honest, as a guy, it was really hard to understand that. I don't know if any of you guys Struggle with that. But the idea of of intimacy with God just seems so like weird, you know. And so I've thought about that because I do think that intimacy with God is the goal. (laughs) But I think maybe a better word for us to think about is is experiencing God or encountering God, having a close connection with God to where we actually are, are united. We're one, we're on the same page that He's on. And so Jesus introduces this idea that God is both relational and sovereign. He is our father, and he's far more caring than we could imagine. But he is in heaven, which suggests that he is sovereign above and beyond all the reality that we know. The next thing is that God's kingdom comes when his will is done. The kingdom of God really is this dynamic rule and reign of Jesus that when it comes, God's will is done. And when God's will is done, God's kingdom is there. And the way to think about that in a practical way is, have any of you ever prayed for healing? Anybody ever prayed for healing? Like Anybody ever gotten prayer for healing? Yeah. Have any of you ever been healed? Few of you have, right? Have any of you ever prayed for somebody and then they got healed and you were so shocked you didn't know what to do? Right? But every time a healing happens or some supernatural, miraculous thing happens, that is the kingdom Breaking into our reality. That is the kingdom coming, because where the kingdom is, God's will is done. God's will is for us to be whole and to be and to be living life and experiencing life in its fullness. And so ultimately, God promises that one day the kingdom will come in its fullness, and the knowledge of God will cover the waters as the the earth as the waters cover the sea. In other words, God's kingdom is gonna be in its fullness. So God's kingdom comes when his will is done is another priority in the prayer. And then finally, God's kingdom design is for prayer to be communal. And again, those words of us and we are prominent throughout the entire text. Let's go ahead and stand up. So here, here's, here's kind of the point, I guess, is when I'm thinking about practices in habits and rhythms for us as a community, like moving forward, I I believe with all of my heart, like more so now than ever before, that we have a calling as a church and that we have a purpose and that God, this is God's church. This is Jesus' church. And he's called us to make a difference in the world that we live in. And every day I drive all over Red Bluff and I see people who need God's grace, God's mercy, God's truth, and to get a job. Was it just a joke? Calm down. Okay. Some people, though, need more than that, right? But there's a lot of things that people need, and we see it all over. We see all these different examples of brokenness, and and I mean, like, I'm joking because, like, I'm just as messed up as anybody. I have, I need grace. I need truth. I need love. And so we see all that around us, and so the question is, how does God communicate those things to the world around us is it's through us, the church. It's us. We We are the hope of the world. Like God is ultimately the hope, but his hope is, is communicated to our neighbors through us being people of prayer, people of mission, people of, of, of sharing, inviting. And one of the habits that sustains us is prayer. It's the communication with God, spending time talking to him, spending time listening to him. So yesterday, uh, I'm at this men's breakfast, and Sean uh, Michael led our time, and he was asking us to share some testimonies, and, and, it, and we went around the room, and out of, you know, I don't know, the 10 testimonies, 12 tw- testimonies that people shared, um, like the majority of them were stories of people going through the absolute worst tragedies imaginable, loss of children, having kids get super sick, having marriages implode. It was, it was story after story after story. And it was story after story after story of people experiencing these really hopeless situations and yet being rooted and grounded in the truth of the gospel and the kingdom that sustained them to make it through the storm. And one of the things that stood out over and over again was that people prayed. People prayed. And so I don't know what, what storms are ahead of you. I, I really don't. I said last week that I'm, I do know this, that in a room or in a church of 350 people, at least half of you are gonna have a really bad year at some point in time. I don't. That's not me being prophetic and I'm not being a Debbie Downer. I'm just telling you, I've been a pastor for 25 years and I know that that's about what I experience. People go through things. So the question is, what is gonna sustain you in the midst of those challenges? A life of prayer will fuel your trust in God and your faith. You spending time regularly, every day, praying without ceasing, as Paul says, will help you through the storms that you face. Amen.